Okay, last week uh, we were in uh, Genesis chapter 2 and we were looking at God's uh, plan for the family and its uh, focus uh, dealt with marriage. And today we're going to be in the sixth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy and we're going to still be looking at God's plan for the family. And this one primarily is going to deal with parenting. But before we start, I want to us to consider a few assumptions here uh, regarding the family and in this context, parenting, but the role we have as Christians. First, if you're married and you don't have kids, your kids are no longer in the home, you have a family and you still play a part in the training and the nurturing in, in the word. If, if you're a single parent, you, you, you are a family. And what we're dealing with here is you're complete in Christ. But here's the thing is, is if you are married, you do not have children, or you are single and do not have children, hear me out because it's important. You play an important part of the body of Christ here at FCC, and you play an important role for the family and what we're going to be dealing with today of transferring the word, transferring the love and the knowledge of our Lord to that next generation. How? How is that so? Because God wants to synchronize the efforts of the church and the family to make disciples of the next generation. One said this, God has designed the church to shine a light to show every generation the glory of God's son. And God has designed the family to nurture the hearts of a generation to love God. Think of it in this context too. No one has more potential to influence the parents than the church and the word of God. The church has the potential also then to influence the child, increasing what the parents should also be doing. And the parents' potential to influence their children is much more increased when they partner with the church. I'm in, again, I know there's people in here in particular, you, you do not have children, but I want you to understand this. It's a huge role within the church. For example, here in this church, we have somebody that has never been married, never had a child, and yet knowing the importance of the word of God being taught, sponsors, sets money aside every year for camp, for youth camp, to help subsidize the cost so that families can afford it. And this is someone, their love for the Lord, their love for the church, and their love for teens, never having had a teen, does this for the glory of Christ and for transferring the gospel message to the next generation. When I did youth, two of my faithfulest workers were a married couple that were not able to have children. They loved teens, they loved the Lord, and they knew that the impact the word of God could have on that generation. So because of that love, they carried it out. We have someone that meets with with young ladies, like I have a 17-year-old in one of my groups, and she is a mentor in the word of God with this person. This is a person that's never had a child, but knows that transferring that word of God to the next generation within the church is critical. So don't tune out. Everybody fits in this place somewhere, somewhere. That group, Psalms 127.3, talks about sons, the next generation being a heritage from the Lord. We have a heritage Whether it's a a biological child or a child within the church, we have a heritage. It's going to be hard work, but it is all about heart work. 
It is the heart and the love for the Lord. And before we continue, I always want to bring this up. Some of you are sitting here and you may have prodigal children that have wandered away from the church and, and you have remorse and heavy hearts from that. Some of you sitting here weren't saved when you raised your children. And if you were spiritually dead when you raised your children, that was what it was. But to God's glory, you now have been raised and are alive in Christ. Here is the thing. Remember, your child has a will that is separate from your own will. He or she are going to make choices that you don't always agree with. But as far as it goes with you, remember, God gives grace to the grieving. Do not lose hope. Keep praying. And as we go through what Moses teaches in Deuteronomy 6, understand God is sovereign and we can be used in a loving way for his kingdom to our kids that may even be wandering out there in the wilderness. So please turn in your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy 6. And we're going to be um, starting in verse 1, but I want to sort of set the scene of what we've got here. The people of God have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and are now on the verge of uh, finally entering into the promised land. The rebellious generation has died off and sort of that next generation is, is on the scene and, and ready to go. Moses, who is, uh, was or is at this moment unable to go into the promised land because of his own disobedience, he wanted to make sure the people of Israel understood the task at hand before they crossed over into the promised land. This morning, we're going to see that, that Moses, as he speaks to the people about what is coming, he does not give them instruction on practical things like farming or shepherding or construction or even battle plans for what's coming. What was first and foremost on his mind and on God's heart is the family's role in faith formation. The role of the family in transferring the love of the Lord to their children so they could see it, they could live it, they could breathe it. I find it rather amazing. You have God's people after wandering for, for 40 years, they're about to enter a pagan land filled with over 40 different people groups. And yet God's focus was on his word and the family. In the text today, we're going to see that the parental job description has really five main responsibilities. And folks, these responsibilities are the responsibility of every person because each one of these responsibilities relates to your relationship with Christ, your relationship with God's word, and then you taking that love and obedience of the word and passing it on. So let's start. We're going to start reading. We're going to read the first three verses, Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 3. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. So the first thing we see regarding Scripture here is that we are to learn it for ourselves. We see this in verse 1 and 2. Moses knew... 
he needed to teach because God had commanded him to do so. But he knew that what he was going to teach, the people must learn. They must obtain and put into practice. The word teach that was used here has the idea of training, training in a way for them to be able to put something into action. This word applies the facts that there is an acceptance and a submission to what he is instructing. The particular teaching situation here is rather unique because we have Yahweh, God himself, communicating these truths to Moses and then Moses teaching the truths to the second generation that is about to enter, uh, the second generation who is there in the plains of Moab about to enter into the promised land. Now, it's important. Notice Moses did not simply speak these words, but he teaches these words. He instructs them in, in, in a loving, thoughtful way to help build their understanding of Yahweh's message. His instruction was not just that Israel might gain some head knowledge. This is, this is important in our lives today. The instruction in God's word is not just for head knowledge, and Moses knew this. The instruction that he was giving, the teaching that he was doing, was not only for information, but it was to experience a transformation, a transformation of a heart. What is being taught through his word must transform the heart, not just be a mental thought, but transform the heart. Part of trusting God is to take him seriously and to take him seriously, we must know what his word says and lovingly apply it. Second Timothy 3.16 tells us the Bible is literally God breathed. In other words, it is God's very words to us. And why is it so important that we learn God's words to us? Well, in verse two, it tells us that it develops within us a proper knowledge of God himself, which in turn creates the English word is fear here, but the Hebrew word is yare. And yare is a verb sort of meaning a little bit of to be afraid, to have a a respect, to have some reverence, but to just be in awe, all coupled together. This is actually the exact same word we used last week in Genesis 3.10, When Adam had sinned and God had come into the garden and Adam heard the voice of God in the garden and he said, I was afraid. I was fearful in awe and respect, but truly an understanding of I am afraid because I have been disobedient. On one hand, this word yare conveys the sense of, of threat to one's life, but on the other hand, It expresses the idea of a reverence and a true, deep respect, love, and awe. In the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord involves a person's total response to God. And it's it's notable that more than 75% of the 370 uses of this word yare in the Old Testament are always in the context of a true reverence for the person of God. The classic word, uh, the classic use of this word is found in, in Proverbs 1 7, where it says, The fear or the yare of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. With the result of this reverential awe, the goal of this was to have a, a, a repentant humility in the people and an ongoing sense of accountability to Yahweh. A true God fearer would then be one who implements his his awe, his fear into practical righteousness and reverence of who God is. 
In Psalm 128.1, it says, the fear of the Lord walks only in God's ways. With a true yare, we would walk only in God's ways. Now, you probably caught the wording here that, that, that learning God's word and, and the reverence that it produces has a promise. We always like promises, right? Do this and something. Well, I like the promises that are a blessing, not the curse. <laughs> you do this and this is going to go down. But there's a promise here and this is, this is really sort of cool. Okay. It says that our days will be, their days will be long or some context, some text will say prolonged or drawn out. The Hebrew word used here for, for long describes a, a growth and expansion, not calendar days, but a growth and expansion. It's the same word that was used in Ezekiel 31.5 in describing the growth of a tree and its branches that were healthy. Ezekiel 31.5 says, but this tree towered over the others and its branches grew long and thick. So the health and the vitality of the tree helped it to extend its reach and to grow bigger and stronger. That's the promise of long. It will be well with you and you will prosper. Also, when it comes to learning the Bible, parents, this is something we always have to remember. That when it comes to the Bible, we need not, we need not forget the fact that every important question that could possibly be asked is answered in scripture. Questions like, what's the purpose of life? Where do I come from? Is there life after death? How do I get to heaven? Why is the world so full of evil? Why do I struggle, mom and dad, to do good? In addition to to big questions like this, the Bible gives much practical advice in areas such as, how do I look for a, a mate or a spouse? How do I have a successful marriage? How do I be a good friend? How do I be a good parent? How do I be a good spouse? How can I change to glorify the Lord? How can I live so that I do not look back with regrets? See, the awesome thing about God's word is for the believer, it literally points us to Christ continuously and a position that keeps us from wasting the years of our life on things which do not matter and will not last. It's Christ and always Christ. It's important for us to know as much about the Bible as we we possibly can because we will never grow in our relationship with God unless we grow in our relationship with his word. Folks, you can't grow in the relationship with God if you don't grow in the relationship with his word. Where do we discover uh, information about God? Through his word. And by his spirit, it is brought to remembrance and it comes into a a union and an understanding of the truth. Okay, so once we have learned the word, the second the, the word of God, the second thing we're supposed to do is obey it. It's to obey it, and we see this in in in, in verse three, and it applies that following God's word is very important. And it does not give the option of obeying or not obeying. It must be obeyed. It says, here, therefore, Israel might really be translated loosely as, hey, pay attention, Israel. Listen up. This is real. Okay. The verb conveys the sense of not just hearing the words, but giving your undivided attention to that which is about to be said. 
that which is about to be said. It must seem obvious, or excuse me, it may seem obvious, but here's the fact, and we know this in, in, in our own nature. If one does not listen attentively to instruction, it is difficult to obey diligently, correct? If I don't listen intently, it's hard to obey diligently. That's always God's pattern for, for spiritual prosperity. Full obedience to him will bring a full blessing. And that's going to be covered more in our passage. In Israel's case, they would have a, this expanding or this going long. Would, it would have a, a, a multiplied population in the land and unlimited natural resources. Why is obedience so important? First John 5 tells us obedience to God proves our love for him and demonstrates our faithfulness to him. First Peter 2 tells us it glorifies him in the world. God will be glorified in this world in the testimony of the living Savior by our obedience to his word and his will. And then John 3.17 tells us obedience opens avenues of blessing for us. And we all like that word blessing. But you have to take it in the context what, what the, these other things are. It is because of our understanding of the word and the love of it. Saving faith is necessary to please God first and foremost. But and if our faith is genuine and true, we will live a lifestyle of obedience to God and to his word. This lifestyle of obedience will be characterized by righteousness and be a modeling example set to others of who Christ is. We obey his commands not because we have to, but because we want to and that we love him. See, Moses is laying out some, some really important things here. And God is expecting full obedience. Remember raising my kids, how many times you had to say the important thing over and over and over and over and hope it sinks in. Moses is going to say this once. And God is expecting full obedience. Have you ever read, well, I hope you have, in reading the word of God, have you ever read something and said, wow, obedience to the Lord's will here is going to be hard? Anyone? Okay. We know that comes. This is going to be hard. And yes, what Moses is saying, and when we're in the word as believers, we will come across things that are going to be hard. Yes, they will. On our own, they would be impossible. But for those that are in Christ, we are enabled to obey. We are capable of obeying because once we believed in Christ and are saved, we are remade. We are made anew. We're not the same people that we once were. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, which would have been incapable of pleasing God is gone and the new has come. As a new creation, what we read in God's word, we are capable of being obedient to. Okay, the wonderful thing about obeying the Lord and his word is then it enables us to live a life, to live a life that is, that is filled with joy. Not happiness and a, a temporary thing, but true joy. True joy without shame and that it's something that's deeply rooted in the Lord. And it gives us a confidence in our eternal hope. It gives us a confidence in our eternal hope. As we sing that last song and it's talking about that day and glory with the Lord, being in his word and being obedient is to it produces a fruit that reminds us on a regular basis that we are sealed through his spirit and that we will have that day with the Lord in 
glory. Second Corinthians 3.17 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. A true freedom because you're not in, in bondage to sin. In John 1, uh, John, 1 John 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 3 says, obedience is part of our assurance. I love that. Obedience is part of our assurance. A part of our assurance of what? That we're his. Obedience is part of our assurance that we truly know God and that we are his. So we learn it. We obey it. And now we come to verse four. And starting in verse four, this next little group of verses from verse four to nine uh, in the Bible here is a section of the Bible that is called the Shema. And this is a word that means here. And you can see it starts with the word here. Now, the Shema or here is a Hebrew word that begins the most important prayer for Judaism. The Shema prayer is spoken daily in Jewish tradition. Later, Jewish tradition developed a a sort of a three-part Shema prayer that also included Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 29, and Numbers 15, 37 through 41, because what they wanted to do is they wanted to encompass these three passages so that it covered all aspects of the Ten Commandments. But what we're seeing here is a true thing of Jewish tradition to repeat on a daily basis, acknowledging who God is. Okay, Jewish tradition states that this is important and that the prayer was so influential in the culture that Jesus used it at the beginning of when he answered the question in Mark chapter 12 of what is the greatest commandment. Jesus used this prayer as the beginning of his answer for what is the greatest commandment. So let's read. Let's read this Shema prayer verses uh, four through nine. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, so verse four here in the Hebrew, it's interesting because verse four is a little difficult to translate. In the literal Hebrew, it says, hear Israel, Jehovah God one. The verb is, is not in the Hebrew text. It's hear Israel, Jehovah God one. So it could be translated something like the Lord, our God is one Lord. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one or the Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Okay. Note that it's not just a, a, a famous or a, a traditional prayer within the Jewish culture, but it is a clear command. It is a clear command to open your ears and to truly hear and obey. Bay. The Shema is direct rejection. It is a direct rejection to the land that they are about to walk into that is polytheistic and there are just hundreds of pagan gods in which to, to worship. That's what they're walking into. See, because it's different because the Shema affirms that there is only one true living God. This verse means that the Lord Yahweh is truly unique and there is none other like him. He alone is God. And this knowledge brings a blessing and a confidence to the Israelites because what it did is it reminded them 
of who they have and gave them a sense of security that was totally impossible for the people that were in these polytheistic uh, cultures. See, their pagan gods rarely were thought to act in harmony together because they were all selfish and 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 wanted that for themselves. They wouldn't act in, in harmony. Each one of these pagan gods could be unpredictable and morally changeable. So a pagan worshiper in that day could never be sure that, that their loyalty to one God would serve to protect them from the wrath of another God. The one God, the monotheistic doctrine of the Israelites, lifted them from insecurity into a place of true security so that they dealt with the one true God in him alone, okay? And by and by the one true God, they would have a, re, a revealed, consistent knowledge and truth in order to live to a righteous standard and to glorify the one God. See, but it's, it's, it's important to understand that this confession here about monotheism, one God, does not eliminate by any means the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And just simply put here without making it a whole sermon, God in this passage that is used is the word Elohim, which is also plural. And the Hebrew word used for one being one God suggests unity, unity. And it is the exact same Hebrew word for one that was used in Genesis 2.24 when it was said that Adam and Eve, two, became one flesh. It is the unity. It is the unity in the one God. So in terms of the role of God's word in our pers- personal life and therefore in our family, we are to learn and we are to obey. And once we are obeying it, the blessing that comes with the understanding of the blessing and, and, and the fruit that it provides, we will then love his word. We will love his word. And that's our third point. We have all heard verse five. Love the Lord God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength. We've all, we've all heard that. And as stated earlier, even Christ said that loving God is the greatest and foremost of all scripture. Okay, it's not enough just to know about God through his word, although that is foundational because you can't love a God that you don't know and you will get to know. You will get to know him through his word. But we must love him. We must love him through his word and it must permeate through our whole being. This means entering into a personal relationship with God. And the only way someone can come into a personal relationship with the one true God is through Jesus Christ. God himself in the flesh. Personally knowing and loving God is the foundation for any household that will glorify Christ. We've got to know him. Our love is to be wholehearted. It's to permeate every aspect of our lives. And folks, as parents, it goes like this. You know your kids are watching. You are not going to be perfect. But who and what the Lord is to you needs to permeate into all aspects of your life. And I could do a laundry list of what all the things are, but you know exactly what they are. You don't need me to list them. We know what those things are. A wholehearted permeating love because God wants our exclusive devotion and our children, that next generation needs to see that exclusive devotion. 
Okay, there are three things here that we should not pass over regarding this word of of love here. Okay, one of them is that love is more than a feeling. It's a command here and a privilege. It's a command to love him and it's a privilege to love him. I am commanded to love him, but oh, praise the Lord. The only way I am able to love him is the privilege of his grace that brought saving faith. So I'm commanded to do something that I'm privileged to do. Y'all follow what I'm saying? His commandments aren't some horrible duty that makes my life difficult. His commandments are for his glory, our well-being. And oh, what a privilege it is that his spirit dwells within the believer. And that we are to be obedient to his word. Okay? You and I must make a conscious decision on a daily basis to love God. Love is not a predominantly a, 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 an action. I mean, excuse me. Love is an action, not an emotion. It is an action, not an emotion. Love is also carried out through a relationship. What God wants most is our love for him. And I love this. Do you see the word here? He used the word your God. Your God, it's, it's personal. He is ours and we are his. This love is personal. It's not something distant or abstract. You personally have the relationship with the one true God, one on one through Christ, our, 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 our connection to um, our Christ, our connector, our, our, our salvation, our propitiation, Okay. Your God. Love is also to be comprehensive. Moses used the word all, okay? Wholehearted love, the wholehearted love of God cannot be answered with half-hearted love by us. I can't be the full throttle lover of the Lord on, on Sunday, his day, and come to church, okay? It is wholehearted love of God needs a wholehearted response by us, okay? By listing the heart, the soul, the strength, Everything that, that, that Moses listed here, there is no area left out. We're to love him with everything that we have, with a devotion in our heart that then is a passion that we carry out. Uh, A.W. Tozer once said, we're called to an everlasting love of God. Everlasting. That love is to be continual in all places, all groups, all times, all environments. God and Our love for him and his will needs to permeate all aspects of our life. We're to love him above everything else, okay? The words are to be lived out, not just something that we give some kind of mental assent to. The Israelites, the Israelites knew God's commands. He knew that they knew that they were engraved on, on stone tablets, but God wanted those commandments to reside within their hearts, not on just the tablets. He wanted it to be shown by their actions, not by just rote words. Parents, God must be all important to us. God must be all important to us if we want him to be all important to our children. There's a famous quote. Who you are speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you're saying. Who you are, day in, day out to that next generation, speaks so loudly that they cannot hear your words. The fourth thing we see here is that after we've worked on our own relationship with the Lord, learn it, obey it, love it, all through the word, we're now to pass it on. We now come to the part of the text where we're to pass it on. 
We've taken it in. We've processed it. It's, it's, it's a living action within our life. And we see the benefits and the blessing of this. And we have a deep awe and love for it. So now it's to pass it on. And what we see here is our fourth point is that we are to teach it. After learning, obeying, and loving, we are now on the spot to, to teach it. And how do we teach it? We teach God's truth intentionally. You don't teach God's word by accident. You have to be purposeful in doing it. It isn't like a, a, well, what can I think of this one time to, to bring God into the equation? You have to be intentional. We see this in the first part of, of, of verse seven here. Okay. We, we will see this in the, in the, in the first part of, uh, uh, verse seven. And, and it deals with this, that it, we need to be intentional, um, in, in, in the word, that it should be represented to our children on a, on a, deeply on a daily basis. The NIV uses the word to impress it upon them. Impress it upon them. Can you sort of just picture intentionally? Lovingly. (laughs) The word. No, lovingly. Impress it upon him. There's a thought process. There's a motivation behind this and it's planned out to impress it. You come to it from every angle you can in every situation. My wife homeschooled our kids, and when she did instruction with a man, the kids would be like, Mom, I get the point. She would rephrase it from every single angle to try to give it to instruction so that's how the light click on. Don't just say it and leave it. Take it from every angle you possibly can to impress it upon them. Some of the Israelites came to take verses 8 and 9 literally. And they actually did these things. But the idea here is not physical, but it is rather a mental and spiritual action of the word. It is to make God's commandments central in our life so that we are thinking about them all the time. If God's word, if God's word is, is, is not on our hearts continually, then, then talking about it and displaying it in the family cannot really take place. Okay. We have to be a part. It has to flow through us so that it can be applied to all lives all areas of our life. We're to teach truth so intentionally that when we look for ways to impress it upon them, what we are showing them is what we've learned through how we're living and they can completely see who we are loving. What we learn should flow so that they see the living, breathing Word of God through our lifestyles. And make sure to take note whose responsibility this is. This is important. Look at the clause again. Teach them diligently to your children. This task is the obli- is not the primary. The, the obligation is not passed off to the church first and foremost. It is your obligation. The church is part of the support system and coming alongside it is not the obligation of the church. It is the obligation of the parent. The Puritans viewed every home, they would call it every home is a little church. They believed that the father should be the pastor of the home in the same way uh, Pastor John is the, the pastor of this church. One writer called the home the seminary of the church, the training ground for the church. Okay, They were so serious about this and the role of, of the father in neglecting the spiritual training of the family in, in, in these Puritan uh, towns. Someone could be brought before the elders for church discipline because they weren't training their children in the word. And if they refused to take the proper leadership role in the word, they would actually be disbarred from the Lord's table 
because they would be in a place of sin and not in obedience to the Lord. One commentator with a thought such of that is that said this. He goes, such a thought seems extreme to us today, which perhaps says more about our laxness in the word of God and loving in it than does the strictness of the Puritans. How many things in our life do we love and enjoy and we want to take that same interest and that love and and pass it on to the next generation? If you love fishing, if you love hunting, if you love carpentry, if you love, name it, and you want to pass that on because you have a desire and a passion for it, woe to us if we don't have the same desire and passion of the word of God and want to teach it and transmit it for, for their skill level and their enjoyment. So how do we do this in the home? We teach truth relationally. We teach the truth of God relationally. This is more than just getting your kids to church once in a week. This is more than sitting them down for for a devotion here and there. We are to make and impress upon them these things by talking about God. Scripture here says when talking about him when we're sitting at home, talking about him when we're out and about, talking about him at bedtime and in the morning. The basic idea is we don't preach at them. We don't preach at them, but we reach them. We reach them by showing how God relates to every aspect of their life. We are to show who God is, not just in informal spiritual settings, but also in the casual uh, classroom of life. We are always learning. They are always learning. Look for teachable moments and be intentional. Take the teachable moment and be intentional and impress upon them. God's commandments or God's will in that situation. We're also to teach and we're to teach God's truth practically. This is in verse eight and nine. See, if they said eight and nine is a little different here because we see the, the, the Israelites had these visual reminders all around themselves about God. They would even put these, these, and, and we sort of have the same kind of thing. They would even, one of the context things here is a mezuzah and it would be these parchment scrolls where you would write out scripture and you would, you would pin them. You'd pin them on the door. You'd pin them here. You'd pin them there. How many of you have a scripture somewhere on the wall in your house? You're a good believer. No, I'm just kidding. But you know what I'm saying? Some of us do. You'll have it up there. But yo, it's not just about scripture being on the wall. Okay, it's not just the, about the scripture or the parchment being on the wall here. It's the idea that God's word is central in your life. The thought process here is that God's word would be central in your life and that you would think about it every turn you make. I shouldn't have to have something posted on the wall. So I turn around and I go, oh, yeah, my loving Lord and his commandments. Okay. The thought process is, is every corner you take, everywhere you go, that is going to be what you are going to be thinking. Well, it's okay to have these reminders on our walls, okay? We have to keep in mind, Jesus was not impressed with the Pharisees who took this passage literally, but didn't apply it to their lives. Matthew 23, 5. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make, they, they, they make, they placate and they, they, they placate, their garments are long and it is all for a show. As far as practical terms go, some of the words that he used here, his, his hands, when he talked about on your hands, it's basically your actions. The actions of my hands will reflect the scripture on the wall. Frontlets. Yeah, don't tack anything onto your head, okay? Frontlets represent thoughts and attitudes. The thoughts and attitudes will reflect God's word. I don't have to pin it in front of my eyes. It's going to be what 
I am going to be thinking about. Doorpost symbolizes the teaching that would take place in the home. And the gates refer to the teaching and the instruction that will happen outside of the house in a social setting. When he says, when you walk by the way, it implies teaching your kids when you go places. Teaching them when you go places. It may be a trip to the store or probably the best place to teach your kid is stuff that happens at school or those wonderful youth sporting events where you see Christian behavior everywhere. Okay? Especially the dad sitting next to you. All right? So it's the kind of thing we use these moments as teaching moments and we impress it upon our kids. Okay? Those are opportunities to talk to the kids about God's creation, how people are acting, and how Christians should act. Don't focus on the bad behavior that was seen. Acknowledge it, and then you talk about what the Lord would desire out of you or your child in that circumstance. When, uh, when Moses says, when you lie down, points to the closing moments of the day. As a great opportunity to talk to your families about their concerns and to pray with them and to encourage them in the Lord. When you rise up implies mornings. Okay. A wonderful opportunity to teach them. Teach them how to start the day off right with the Lord. And oh, if you're going to teach them how to start the day off right with the Lord, what do you have to be doing? You know, you know, because your actions speak so loud, they can't hear your words. We have to learn to do that and then we can transfer it to our kids. A wonderful example that we can do. If they are grumpy in the mornings, just shove a bunch of coffee down there. No, I'm kidding. If they're grumpy in the mornings, literally we stop and we show them and we tell them how to begin the day with a cheerful heart. It is that connecting with the spirit and remembering of all the joys, all the promises that as our feet hit the floor, it is not dread. But it's for God's glory because we are his children. Okay. Moses is saying that everything you think and do from home to the world should be permeated with God's words, with the word of God. Parents must be the word of God must be all important to us if we want it to be all important to them. And I'm serious. It isn't for show. Don't walk around with your Bible and, you know, Ruffle it up to make it look like you've been reading a lot and stuff like that and carry it around in your hand. Read it. Let them see you read it. But more importantly, let them know you read it by what is transferring and being seen in your life. So after we learn, we obey, we love, we teach, we're, we're told to teach, but then it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop with, I told you so. Okay, we are the fifth point here. We're to remind them. We are to remind them of these things. Sort of like we're, we're gonna, as we're passing on this, 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 this baton here in the, in, in the race of life, we're gonna be doing some mentoring and reiterating things, reviewing things. Okay? Let's read this. And this is in the, the last couple of verses here. We see this. This is verses 10 through 12. And it says, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good, good things you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. So here, God looks ahead to the time when they're going to be in the promised land and stuff is going to be good. 
they'll have things. It says flourishing cities, furnished homes, and abundance of, 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 of nutrients and, and, and treats. Okay? God knew that things such as these might undermine their, their, their spiritual vitality and that they would lose their sense of awe and trust in the Lord because of these comforts. The concern that once they were in the promised land, that a satisfaction in life might lead to uh, spiritual stagnation and that they would forget, they would forget and then forsake. Okay. Do you notice God wanted the Israelites to remember what they used to be, that they, that they were slaves in the land of Egypt and that God brought them out to the promised land. We need to remember that we were once slaves to sin, lost and, and separated from God. And it's only by his grace that we were saved and set free. When we start to forget this ourselves, when we don't preach the gospel message to ourselves on a daily basis, we start to lose our edge spiritually. And we become like what Moses was telling the Israelites that you do not want to become. This idea is connected to Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25. Let me read this. Moses said, when your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that our Lord God commands? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and against all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us this land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these things, these statutes to fear him for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all of his commandments before the Lord our God as he commanded us to do. So Moses is saying, hey, when your kid comes up and asks why, when your kid comes up and asks why, you need to be ready to explain. Here he's talking about the deliverance which God brought him out in the Old Testament and Exodus. It's a picture of God's redemption Okay, it's a picture of God's redemption and the promised land. Well, in the New Testament, the picture of God's redemption is the cross and Jesus Christ. Folks, we are to explain the great truths of salvation to our kids. Don't respond with the question like, go ask Pastor John, go ask your Sunday school teacher, or please never just simply do something like, well, that's what we believe, or because I said so. Explain to them in detail coming from every possible angle you can to explain it clearly so that their questions can be answered in regarding in regard to God in his word. Okay, explain that God's commands are are for our good. Okay, yeah, God gives many negative commands, but not because he's some um, heavenly spoil sport and wanting to just ruin our life. It's because he cares for us and he wants to bless us. Obedience is the way to experience his blessing, okay? His commands are, are sort of like the rule of the road, okay? If, if, you, if you don't follow the rules of the road, you will not be safe. If you run red lights or, or drive on the other side of the street, eventually you're gonna hurt yourself and hurt others. Obedience to God's word is for his glory and our spiritual well-being. We must present God's truth and his commandments in a wholesome, helpful loving, explanatory way. We want them to see our lives and from our instruction that the Bible is a book that applies to every single aspect of life. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, near the end of Moses' life, Moses gives this final instructions. Uh, Deuteronomy 37, verses 46 
uh, and 47. It says, uh, actually, excuse me, Deuteronomy 32, verses 46 and 47. says, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words, for it is no empty word for you, but it is your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess this day. It is our life. Moses understood this well. He knew that once Joshua was going to cross into the promised land, that they were going to enter another country. And they knew that he knew that the Canaanite idolatry was going to cause trouble. But how would they stand strong in this land? Only by adhering to the one true God and his word by loving him supremely, by obeying his commandments, and by impressing those things upon their children as the wicked world tries to say otherwise. Every home must be a place where God's word is visible in action and talked about. How did Timothy, how did Timothy survive his ministries in a city like Corinth that had uh, temples filled with willing and, 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 and willing prostitutes? God gave Timothy the tool that he needed in his word. Everything Timothy needed was there. If he remembered what he had been taught, he would find himself fully equipped in the midst of those sinful, vile cities. The same is true today. God's word can protect our families and make our children strong. We have everything that we need in his word. Our task as parents is to take it in ourselves to impart it to our children. We must, we must join our families in the word of God. If we don't, if we don't, they can easily be swept away by, by the surge of the ungodly influences in this culture. May it not be so. May we love him so supremely that we are in our word, that we know how we love our children. May it just flow through us for his glory and their well-being. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for your, your word and, Lord, the promises and, and the blessing um, that comes through being obedient to you. Lord, no matter where we are at in the circumstance in our life and, and transmitting this love for your word to another generation, Lord, may we first and foremost understand that this Learn obedience and love is the call for every single believer in this room. And then, Lord, as we learn and we're obedient and we love, may we seek to glorify you by letting it live through our lives so that others will see, others can learn, others can know. Lord, so that the lost may be saved. For your glory and your glory alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.